Amen. We have been in a series on uh, Christ above all. It's a journey through the book of Colossians, where Christ is exalted uh, in every way. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some uh, false spiritualities that we find in uh, legalism and the different ways that we try to approach the Christian life and even approach our relationship with God. And last week, we turned to the first part of chapter 3, where we were beginning to look at the foundations of a genuine spirituality, of a heart and a mind that are fixed on the things above. And so we moved this morning into verses 5 to 11, um, talking about becoming who we are. And this really takes us into the heart of of a daily spirituality that is engaged in a warfare. That, uh, that has us engaged in the midst of a battle. And so my goal this morning would simply be to push you, to challenge you, to move you, to step up your game in this battle, in this uh, movement and change that God longs to take place in our souls and in our lives. We're in Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. Hear then the word of God. Paul says to put to death, Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene Talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off your old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have again gathered this morning, this Lord's day, as your people. We are the assembly of our God. And so we come to you. We come to sit at your feet and learn from you, to give you our hearts afresh, not only in the songs that we sing, but in the lives that we live. And so in these moments, as your word comes forth, we ask that it would come forth in power, that it would have the impact on our hearts and our minds and our very lives as you desire it to, that it would be transformative. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting that Queen Elizabeth's husband is not the king. And if she dies, he won't be the king. That her firstborn son is going to be the next king, Charles. Imagine long ago a similar situation where the queen becomes pregnant with her first child, but then she dies giving birth to her son. So that at the moment of his birth, he is king. He is born as the next king. Now he's just a baby. And so his father takes the regency, so his father helps to reign and to rule until the son comes of age. About the age of 10, he asks his father, why can't I go and play and 
and participate in all the worldly silliness of the, of the, of the uh, other children of those who are around us. Why can't I go and participate in all of that? And his father sits him down and he explains to him and he says, Son, you need to understand the moment you were born, you were the king. And right now, you are the king. And one day, soon, you will sit on the throne and you will reign in the full powers as king. And so now you need to put off the childishness of this world because you were born the king and right now you are the king and one day you will fully be in the powers of the king. So you need to put off the foolishness of the world. You need to be trained and you need to be disciplined in the royal character, in the royal life, in what it means. You need to be taught wisdom in justice. You need to be taught to fight in all the arts of war. You need to be trained in the nature of kingship, in what it means to be the king. You need to be trained in the ethics of the court. You need to learn to put aside your selfish desires. You need to learn to deny yourself for the sake of the kingdom. Because that is who you are as king. Someday you will sit on the throne. And so you must be molded and shaped and taught to be who you are, son. And so every day between now and that day, when you will take up the throne in the fullness of its powers and reign as king, every day from now until that day, day, your whole life is bent towards shaping you to be who you are. Long live the king. It's interesting that that is exactly the way the Bible presents our identity in Christ. It's exactly the way that it presents it. It's past, present, and future. You were born king. You're king now, and one day you will reign in the fullness of that kingship. You were born holy ones. You are holy right now. And someday you will stand in the presence of the Holy One. In the fullness of this holiness. You were born holy because you were united to Christ by His Spirit. And we've been talking about the last last week in a way that, that all that is his is ours, that you are seated with him. Even now, going back to verse 3 and 4, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and that is right now. So you were born into this status at birth. You were sanctified, set apart, and made holy in God's sight. And if you remember all the way back to when we started this series in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, we did a whole sermon on the fact that he addresses the letter to the church in Colossae to the saints. We talked about the meaning of the word saint literally means to holy ones, to sanctified ones. Those who were born holy. And my friends, you are holy right now. In his presence. You are holy right now. And one day, his promise is that one day you will stand in his presence. Fully sanctified. Every day. Until that day. 
The whole of your life should be bent toward being shaped and disciplined to be who you are. This is at the heart of the Christian life. It, it runs as the blood through the pages of the New Testament that, that every day that we live as his people, born again into a holiness, that we would bend the, the strength of our lives to becoming who we are in Christ. Practice denying ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. That we would be taught and trained and disciplined to be holy ones. So what 2 Corinthians 7.1 tells us that since we have these promises, they're the promises of verses 1 to 3 that you've been raised with Christ. You know that you are with Christ seated at the right hand of God. That, that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Since we have these amazing promises Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us put to death everything that belongs to the earth that is earthly from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, putting on the new life every day until that day. He says, let us be about the master's business in our own souls. Verse 5 starts with a therefore. It's tucked as the fourth, fourth word there, but it should probably be switched around and it says put to death, therefore, therefore put to death. Since you died and have been raised with Christ, therefore since verses 1 to 4 are true, that you died, you're raised with Christ, you are united to him, reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He says, in the light of these massive indicatives of grace, we need to pursue this reality in our daily lives. Now we need to train our bodies and souls to be who we are. And he presents this task in a twofold work. And you see it running here, but it comes out in, 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 in a lot of places in the New Testament where he presents it. There's a positive side and a negative side. He says, put to death everything. That is earthly in you. Everything that is less than royal, everything that is less than holy, it needs to die. It needs to be executed, put out of its misery. But he says there's a positive side, and we hit that running into verse 10. He says, and we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator that we're to put off and to put to death an old self and to put on a new self. There's stuff that needs to die. There's Graces that need to be nurtured, the positive side, the negative side. You died, he says in verse 3, so put to death in verse 5. You live, he says in verse 1 and 4, he says, so, verse 10, put on the new life. Put to death whatever is earthly. Now when he says earthly, that's not some vague thing, stuff of the earth like hamburgers. You know, I was just thinking about that. Like, where would you go? What does he mean by earthly? Um, <clears throat> you know, so, you know, maybe eating six hamburgers in the same sitting would be earthly and should be put to death. But eating hamburgers isn't what he means by earthly. When, he, when he's talking about earthly, he's talking about the opposite of what he was describing in the first four verses. When he says that you should, if then you have been raised with Christ, you should set your, your minds on things above where Christ is. 
And the things that are earthly are those things that are opposite to the things that are above, the things that are in Christ, his character and his nature and all that he won and all that he is for us. And so what is earthly in us is that which is opposed to, contrary to, the image of God in Christ. And so the earthly is simply really the works of the flesh. And we know this, if you know Galatians 5, where he talks about the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit, the one should be put to death and the other should be put on the fruits of the Spirit, that in that list of the works of the flesh are basically the lists, very similar, overlapping greatly, the list that he gives us right here. In verse 5, he gives us examples of the works of the flesh or that which is earthly and contrary to the spirit and the things that are above sexual immorality, impurity, passion, lust, evil desire, covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. And I would read this list as, as one, like pull them all together. When he says covetousness at the end, it seems kind of out of place, doesn't it, with that other list? Like of all the things that you just listed those and then covetousness, you know. <clears throat> but I think that covetousness actually summarizes that list for us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, which is sexual greed. Right, the, the, All of those different things are a kind of sexual greed, covetousness, which is idolatry. So all of it then becomes an, all of it becomes an idolatry. In other words, our minds are set on the wrong things if we are we're living in that list. Our minds are set on the wrong things. Our inner drives and passions are, are about the wrong things if we're on that list. And this then is, is, ends up being misdirected, and so we end up worshiping sex instead of God. This is idolatry. And he says it's serious business, which is why you end up with verse 6. The very next thing he says is because of these things, that the wrath of God is coming. This idolatry, this worshiping of what is earthly, of what is of the flesh, rather than those things that are above where Christ is. And then in verse 8, he gives us a second list. He goes to the mouth and he says we have to put away from our mouths, put away from our mouths anger. And anger is, is more of that settled attitude towards you. From angry at you, it kind of sets in. Where malice, I mean, uh, wrath then is the next word. And trying to discern some of these things, wrath is that more when that settled anger that's in here comes spewing out on you. That's wrath. It's the overflow, that, that momentary, you know, vomiting of my anger on you. So put away both anger, that settled heart attitude, and the wrath that it overflows on other people. The same next two words I see together, also the, the malice, that settled negativity towards somebody, which overflows then in slander, where we end up saying things that we shouldn't say about people. Gossip, obscene talk, obscenity, dirty, unclean, things that are innuendo or doing things that are inappropriate to be coming out of the mouths of believers. Put them away, he says, lying. And why? Verses 9 and 10 tell us why. Because you've put off that old self with its practices 
You've put on the new self. You're being renewed in the knowledge of the image of your creator. He is making you a new creation in Christ in the way that you were meant to be. Put to death is the command. So I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about that a little bit. What does it mean to put to death? And we'll come back next week about putting on and bringing to life the graces on the other side. But, but the first side of it is this command that comes strongly in verse 5. After the massive indicatives of His grace, in verses 1 to 4, He gives His powerful imperative, kill your sin, He says. Kill it. Execute it. Put it to death. Carson, one of the commentators on this, says that ideal status of one to four, that ideal status must be wrought out in terms of our practical experience. Right? It needs to be wrought out in our daily lives. It, that all that we are in Christ in verses one to four needs to be wrought out and brought manifest in our daily living before him and before the world. To become who we are. Galatians 5.24 says... Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those for whom verses 1 to 4 are true. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. And in one sense, it's already done, right? You died. And your life is hidden with Christ. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's passions and desires, which is the two lists that he just gave us. Everything from immorality to anger. And wrath. So the command comes and says to kill it. And it comes with this strong sense that it's not something to be toyed with, right? Something to be played with. And you and I would say, well, I would never do that. I would never toy with it. I would never play with it. But the reality is, we do try to manage. Our sin, don't we? Often that is our approach to it. We'll manage it. You know, if we can keep it within certain bounds, you know, maybe where it's hidden, maybe where it doesn't affect anybody else, or maybe where, you know, just if I can keep it out of sight, out of minds, and if, it, if I can keep it from getting out of control, you know, that's it. I'll just manage it and try to make sure it stays in control. We do that. We do that all the time. And he says, don't manage your sin. Kill it. Put it to death. It's not an option. Managing, toying with, keeping it as a pet. It's not an option. It has to go. The flesh, Paul says in, in Romans 8, the flesh is hostile to God. And it's not only hostile to God that, that all those things are also at war with your own soul. John Owen, famous Puritan in his famous work on uh, the mortification of sin, which literally means mortification is to put to death, to mortify. A mortician deals in death, right? So the mortification of sin, this 17th century, one of the, one of the greatest ever written that is still studied and used today. And he says this, you need to be killing your sin or it will be killing you. 
And he says, those are the options. And that is, that's what the Bible says is true. You have to be killing it or it will be killing you. Even if you keep it managed and hidden, it will be eroding your soul underneath. It will be destroying your spiritual vitality and your joy and your usefulness in the kingdom, your ability to enjoy him and to worship him. If you are not killing your sin, it will be killing you. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter writes and he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as those whose life is hidden with Christ in God so that you're sojourners and exiles in this world, I, I, I urge you to abstain, to put to death, to put off the passions of the flesh listed in verses 5 and 8. Why? Because they are at war with your soul. Like it's a matter of Life and death for you. It's a matter of spiritual health and serious spiritual illness. But do you believe this? Do you believe that these things are actually at war with your soul? That these things listed over here from our anger and our wrath and our lust and the things that go on in our hearts and our minds, that these things are out to destroy and will destroy if given reign our souls. So what are the weapons of our warfare to kill sin? Let me give you some just practical things. I'll give you some this week, and I'm going to give you some more next week as we put on uh, and as we put off, but a few of the practical things. And, and my first answer is going to be very dissatisfying at first to you. I know, because, you know, when you hear these, these uh, pat answers to, to what, I, what do I do to fight my sin? How, how do I? Okay, you got me. I'm, I'm going to go to war. You know, what is the weapon of my warfare? Put the sword in my hand, and I will off with his head, right? What is it? And the first answer is faith. And you're like, I knew that. Like, I need something else. Like, I had that all, you know, I need something serious to kill my sin. But I'm telling you, my friends, Minds, verses 1 and 3, minds and hearts fixed in the truth is the first line of defense in your war against sin. Because sin works by temptation. Temptation works by lies and deception. And you need to know the truth. Your first line of defense is to know truth. A verse that has been so important in my own walk with Christ that I come back to over and over again. You've probably heard me use it, Romans 6, 11, and 12. He says this, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that it makes you obey its passions, right? But he starts with this, you must consider. Let's leave this up there for a minute, please. You know, let's, let's consider yourselves the things that he's been saying in verses 1 to 4, right? 
dead to sin. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are alive unto God as if you sat with Jesus at his very right hand in the powers of heaven. He says you must consider yourselves this way, and this consider means you need to think like this. You need to spend enough time in this verse, in other verses, thinking about it and praying about it so that your mind and your heart are actually shaped in such a way that you think like this. I am dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ. And to live in that place, that frame of mind, every day, all day, that's who you are. Know who you are in Christ. And it is only then that he will say, then, therefore, when, when you've got this mindset, then you can not let sin reign. Not let sin have its way with you so that you're obeying it rather than Christ and the new man. Consider what you are in Christ. Know it deep down. The new person, the new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. You died and behold, you are alive. The next thing you need to believe is not only do you need to believe these things and to so have our hearts and minds shaped by the truth here, there's another thing you need to believe deep down. I mean, you know, not up here. Oh, yeah, I believe that. I mean, like, you've come to that settled so that, you know, when you've come to, you know, the idea that something, if you keep doing it, is going to kill you, you know, and that, that settled thing, then usually we'll stop doing it. Right? Usually when we have that settled, when it comes deep down to where it actually changes our behavior, the second thing you need to believe absolutely from the Scripture is this. You do not have the power in yourselves to kill it. You have to know that at a deep soul level. I can't win this fight. I don't have the power, the ability within me if I go toe-to-toe with it, I'm going to lose. If you don't know that, you'll go toe-to-toe, right? If you don't know that, you're going to try to do it yourself. In other words, you're going to try to fight the flesh with the flesh, and you're going to lose because you can't do it. You do not have the power. Do not let sin reign. Do not let it have power over you. Put it to death. If you don't put it to death, it will reign. It can reign. It's waging war against your soul even now. And if you don't wage a good warfare, if you don't fight a good fight, there are so many ways it will get that foothold in you and it will begin to, in a sense, undermine your spiritual life. And so you have to know in the deepest places of your soul Apart from him, I can do nothing. We don't really believe that. Because if we did, it would so change our spiritual lives. If you thought that apart from him, you could do nothing, oh, what a rich devotional life you would have. Oh, how often you would be in dialogue with him. Oh, how often you would be asking for the power and the grace and seeking his mercy and forgiveness in the fullness of his spirit, how often you would be fighting your sin. You know, there's that old cliche that says the battle is won on our knees. My friends, it's true. The battle is won in relationship with him. We, 
he says, it is those who abide in me who bear much fruit. If we want the, the fruit of the death of our sin and, and, and the nurturing of those graces, we need to understand that it is only as we seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated as our Savior and our King in glory and in power, and as we fix our minds and set our hearts on Christ and His power in relationship with Him, that those things begin to have fruit in us. The grace to put off the flesh and the power of the Spirit. Romans 8 says this, 13 to 15. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you don't put it to death, it will kill you. But if by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live. You will experience an abundance of life. For all those who are led by the Spirit, and in this sense that led by the Spirit, we're going the leading of the Spirit in some mystical thing that, you know, took me, you know. But here, the leading of the Spirit is, it, is, is the following and the walking with the Spirit in this battle. If we live according to the flesh, we'll die. But if we walk in the Spirit, if we're led by the Spirit, we will live. And then we are truly God's sons. That's what Galatians 5, 16, and 17 says. If you walk by the Spirit, that is, if you're led by Him, if by Him, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll put them to death. You will not tolerate them. The Holy Spirit is the one who wages war he says that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, but it is the desires of the Spirit that are against the flesh, that is opposed to the flesh. It is a Spirit that is able to oppose the power of the flesh. It is not in ourselves. That's why Paul says you must be full of the Spirit. And so we have to seek it. Where do we find the fullness of the Spirit? This is where I come back to. We have to do, cultivate a devotional life. I believe that the fullness of the Spirit comes as we are with Him, in His Word, dialoguing with Him. I don't mean, you know, and this is the whole thing. So often our devotional life, our quiet time is, you know, I read, you know, uh, I read this little thing for 10 minutes, check. I prayed for Aunt Martha's wart on her toe, check. You know, and then I did, you know, I have the things that I, that I pray and check. Your devotional life is you've got to go to the war room, right? You've got to go. There's a movie, I think. You know, there, you've got to go to the war room. You've got to go be with God about these things. Here's where the battle is fought. It's fought on our knees with him, wrestling with him about those things in us that need to die. And the, and the graces that only come from him, oh, Father, that, that, that I might be able to put them down. Right? The believers is it, a, a quiet time or devotional life or time in these with him is not something a good Christian does. It's something a victorious Christian does. It's not about checking a list and being a good person. It is, a, it is literally the spiritual lifeline. You know that in, in battles, in war, that one of the most important strategic things that, that, that most people don't think about and don't even know about, the most important strategic thing in most battles is the supply line. If you take four million men, as Hitler did, and invade Russia in winter, like Hitler did, 
And you send 4 million men marching in there. You get 50 miles into there, and, and 4 million men, if you don't have, you're going to run out of, within 50 miles, you're out of food, you're out of water, you're out of fuel, your tanks are just sitting there, dead in the water, there's no ammo, you've used it up, there's no, there's no more battle, <clears throat> there's no more warfare. Like, the supply line is crucial to carrying on a warfare. I need food and water and ammo and fuel, right? That's your devotional life. That's where you are filled with the Spirit to carry on, to carry forward the battle. My friends, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. And if you've got strongholds, they can be pulled down. And there is victory, but you will not make it happen. Because apart from Him, you can do nothing. We need to learn to hate our sin. To hate it. Because if we don't, we will coddle it instead of kill it. We will toy with it instead of killing it. it sin hardens our hearts through its deceitfulness. And as soon as we start having a dialogue with it, you know, whenever, you know, temptation comes out here, you know, oh, you know, kind of floats across the top of your head, you're like, hmm. If we don't put it down immediately and we engage in a conversation with it, it's already, gone in, it's already gone from outside the gates to inside the gates. And once you start having a conversation with it and you're toe-to-toe, the chances are you're going to lose, right? And so by God's grace, we need to learn to hate our sin. The hook is hidden inside the bait. We need to stop excusing our sin and justifying our sin, which is what we do in so many ways. Sometimes, whether it's our anger, I'll say, well, she made me angry. She made me angry, or she deserves my anger, right, because of what she's done, or my anger is righteous, right? It's the first thing in the list that he says needs to die. And I'm telling myself, that's the only way I can get through to her. Or it's the only way that, you know, I can uh, handle these things. Whatever it is, put it in there. Anything from his list, you know, the immorality, you know, and the lust of the mind and the heart, and you put it in there. And as soon as you start having a dialogue where we start justifying it, having a conversation with it, like he says, off with its head, right? Off with its head. And John Owen in his treatise on mortification says, you've got to do that early and fast. Or it goes from being out here to being in here. As soon as you start having that dialogue, it's in here. And he says, you have the strength early to say no. But the longer you have a conversation, the less ability and will you will have to say no in the end. And you know what I'm talking about. You start down that road, you know where it's going to end. Which is why he says you have to put down the very first motions of your sin to give it no quarter while you still can. To get to that place where you hate your sin and you know who you are. And when it raises its ugly head, off with its head, early, fast, no quarter. This is where we may employ hedges, and I'll leave you with that because I, I left on the, on the whole <clears throat> discussion of legalism. And one of the things I wanted to say there was that there's still a place for what we would call hedges. In other words, where 
there are things that you may choose and barriers you may choose to put up that God has not commanded. But you knowing yourself, when you know yourself, you know your temptations, you know the times, you know the places, you know the way the enemy worms his way in, you know how it happens. And so for you, there are things that you would choose to do to protect yourself, not because God has commanded them, but because it's a strategic decision that you make to protect yourself. Right? If you deal, <laughs> well... We'll put out there, you, you can put whatever you want in there. If your trouble is with drunkenness, you might choose not to drink. It's not that God has commanded you not to, but you might make that strategic choice for you to protect you. There are a thousand of those in my life. I have little rules for myself. I shared one that, that week. A thousand of them. God hasn't commanded them, but I'm trying in that sense in the grace of the Holy Spirit and strategic choices to wage war. On my sin. You are the saints of God. Holy at birth. You were born holy. You are holy now. And one day you will stand in his presence. With great joy. In the fullness of holiness. No more sin and no more tears. And every day until that day. Your whole life should be bent. Towards shaping you to be. Who you are. In the power of his spirit. In the grace of that is ours in Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this warfare. That you neither leave us as you found us, wallowing in our sin, and nor have you just told us to go and fix it. Thank you that you have provided everything we need according to your grace, the outpouring of your spirit, the, the opening of access into your very presence. Father, teach us to walk with the Spirit, to find your daily presence, that it might be the source of a new life and the strength for a good fight, that we might grow into the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.